This is the Six Gun Justice Podcast with wordslingers Paul Bishop and Richard Brosh. Hello, and welcome to Episode 6 of the Six Gun Justice Podcast. We're glad to have you riding along with us for another half hour celebrating the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre. I'm Paul Bishop, and ramrodding this outfit is my co-host Richard Prosh. Howdy, Rich. What trails are we going to be heading down for this episode? Hey, Paul. Today we're going to be pitting two great films against each other, the original 310 to Yuma and its 2007 remake. Once we've settled that dispute, we'll be dipping our toe into the swimming hole known as Weird Westerns by going back to the roots of that oft-times controversial Western genre offshoot. Wow, okay, a lot to get through. But let's start with a couple of reviews. What have you been reading? Well, I was lucky enough to snag an advanced reader copy of Coyote's People, written by Andrew McBride. This is the newest entry in his series featuring Calvin Choctaw Taylor. Though it is part of a series, the book works just fine as a standalone novel. And in this installment, we meet our hero, Moving Cattle. When, of course, trouble ensues. Though he carries the name Choctaw, Calvin Taylor is a 17-year-old white boy caught up in the middle of the conflict between the Apache Chief Coyote and Lieutenant Austin Hamilton, the man who commands Camp Walsh, and is sympathetic to the plight of Coyote and his people. Choctaw's been taught to disrespect and despise the Apache until he meets a beautiful young Apache girl and romance blossoms. Choctaw, Coyote, and Hamilton find themselves in the middle of an ugly conflict with their lives on the line. There's plenty of gunplay and shoot-em-up moments in this novel based on actual events that occurred in the 1870s. There are other books in the series, including Canyon of the Dead, Death Wears a Star, Death Song, The Arizona Kid, Shadow Man, and The Peacemaker. With the release date of April 22nd, this one's just hot off the press. What about you, Paul? Has anything good registered on your Western-o-meter? Westernometer? Okay, then. <laughs> with the ongoing quarantine situation, I've been going through used bookstore withdrawals. As a result, I've been judiciously staging sneak attacks on eBay's Western novel listings. I've also been pillaging my bookshelves for stuff I've been wanting to read but have been distracted from by other shiny objects. Snag any bargains from that mail order effort? Mm, bargains is a strong word. I pulled the trigger on a very good copy of the Whitman TV tie-in for Restless Gun, Cost me three bucks, including postage, which was a real steal. But then I went back and splurged on a copy of the TV tie-in paperback to Cimarron Strip by Richard Mead. In real life, Mead is the great Ben Haas, who, of course, wrote the Fargo books that we love so much under his John Benteen pseudonym. The Cimarron Strip tie-in is quite scarce, but even so, I'm not going to cop out to the purchase price. You can call it pandemic comfort buying, pandemic panic buying, but I prefer to think of it as a methadone hit. One of the books I grabbed off my shelf was The Bells of San Juan. It's a collection of short stories by Alan LeMay, who's best known for his novels The Searchers and Unforgiven. Both, of course, were made into acclaimed films. The stories in the collection range from those with a powerful impact, such as The Kid, which is about a young boy who loses his dad on a cattle drive and has to grow up real fast, kind of leaves a tear in your eye by the end of it. And then there's The Pulp of the Gray Rider, which is a masked hero romp and is very pulpy. The title story, The Bells of San Juan, caps the collection and shows off LeMay's writing chops to good effect. So how has quarantine reading been for you, Rich? I just finished Rio Rio Doso, the first book in Spur Award winner Preston Lewis's Three Rivers trilogy. The book itself is filled with robust prose, colorful characters, and a plot that's laced with history. 
It's a story of Wes Bracken, who dreams of sharing a horse ranch with his brother, Luther, in New Mexico Territory. Now, Luther's a drunk and runs with a gang of relentless racists, the Horrell Brothers. It's a pretty good setup, firmly in place, with most of the characters introduced early on. What sets Rio Rio Doso apart from the standard fast-action western is Bracken's complex character. Whether he's helping Luther deliver a foal, or helping his love interest, Serafina, deliver her baby, Bracken has a deep set of emotions rooted in values that, frankly, aren't always rock-solid. Add to that, it's a story embroidered directly into the tapestry of Southwest history. The infamous Lincoln County War is soon in the offing, and Lewis is a master of dropping in factual accounts and historic characters without upsetting the narrative flow. That's a real talent. Plenty of action and enjoyable romance. This is a top-notch entry for history buffs and traditional Western fans. I'd like to direct listeners to our website, sixgunjustice.com, where they can find a quick question-and-answer session with Preston Lewis about the series and his thoughts on writing it. Sounds like great stuff, Rich. I've read a couple of Lewis's other books. They're humorous tales featuring the memoirs of H.H. Lomax. They're kind of like the Flashman books, and they're an awful lot of fun. You should read them if you get an opportunity. Absolutely will. Do we have anything else, or are we ready to move on to our feature? Let's get to it, but before we start, we should probably announce a spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read 310 to Yuma or seen the movies. We are going to be giving away plot points and endings, so if you don't want to hear those things, you might want to put your fingers in your ear and say la 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 for the next 15 minutes. (laughs) Or they could simply pause this episode, go watch the films, then come back and continue listening. Wow, you don't know how to have fun, (laughs) do you? We should also give a quick plot synopsis for anyone unfamiliar with the story. It starts with Dan Evans and his two sons riding toward Bisbee to confront the malicious land baron who's trying to foreclose on their impoverished ranch. On the trail, they inadvertently witness the violent climax of a stagecoach robbery led by famed outlaw Ben Wade. When Evans eventually gets to Bisbee, he's surprised to learn bad timing has led to Wade being captured. However, Wade's vicious gang is still on the loose and determined to spring their leader. The problem, of course, is getting Wade from Bisbee to the town of Contention, where he can be put on the 310 train bound for Yuma Territorial Prison to be tried and hanged. It's a great setup, especially when the representative of the railroad and stagecoach company offers $200 to any man willing to help escort Wade to Contention and make sure he gets on the train. It's a dangerous proposition, but Dan is desperate for the money, and he volunteers. But putting his hand up is not just about saving his ranch. It's also about proving to himself and to his defiant eldest son that he is more than a timid, hard-scrabble rancher unable to support his family. Which is the perfect example of what makes both movie versions of 310 to Yuma so multi-layered. This is also displayed during the intense journey to contention. Wade's vengeful gang are in hot pursuit, and circumstances force the escort into Indian territory with the expected result. But this is all window dressing. The true danger comes from Wade himself as he unleashes his inherent conniving and murderous nature. What ensues is a crafty, understated battle of wits and wills between the sociopathic outlaw and a man whose determination and ethics are being forged in a trial by fire, which gets hotter with every step he takes. It's a riveting scenario. It really is a cool setup. In preparation for this episode, I pulled my collection of Elmer Leonard's Western short stories off my shelf. It's one of those books that's been sitting on my to-be-read list forever. So I sat down and I actually read The 310 to Yuma for the first time. Have you read it before, Rich? I have. I've read many of Elmore Leonard's westerns, and even though it may be heresy to say so, I enjoy them more than his crime fiction. I've got your back regarding that bold statement. 
which we'll be talking about in upcoming episodes centered on Leonard's legacy of Western short stories and novels. Is that your way of telling me to keep our focus on 310 to Yuma? Impersonating Sheriff Obvious is just one of the many services I offer. (laughs) Moving on. Leonard's 310 to Yuma short story was originally published in 1953 in an issue of the pulp magazine Dime Western. It's been reprinted many times, not because it's the best of Leonard's westerns, but mostly because of the high profile of the two successful films made from its premise. The short story really does pack a lot of punch, and even though the names of the characters are different, if you've seen the films, you'll recognize them instantly by the intensity and tempo of their dialogue, the trait for which Leonard was revered. What surprised me most, however, was how short the original story is. It only details the final climactic scenes of the film, which for me illustrates the brilliance of the screenwriters who had to create all of the backstory in a manner that would not waste the intensity of Leonard's word. And both films do a good job of fleshing out the characters, especially rancher Dan Evans, who not only has a different name, but a whole backstory the lead character in the short story doesn't have. Right. In the original short story, the hero is a marshal named Scanlon, who is transporting outlaw Joe Kidd from Bisme to Contention to get on the 310 to Yuma. But in the movies, it's all about the reason rancher Dan Evans, who steps into the Scanlon role, is willing to risk everything for $200 to clash with the outlaw, who is renamed Ben Wade. The difference in the setup allows the screenwriters much more latitude to draw the story out, tighten the tension, and add layers of emotional fireworks. Clearly, prose fiction and film are two different mediums, but both cleverly capture the claustrophobic feel of the story, the tempo of the dialogue, some of which is directly lifted from the short story into the scripts of both of the films. But at the heart of all three is the unorthodox relationship that develops between Wade and Evans. Both films feature big-name actors. Glenn Ford, who stars in the 1957 version, was originally offered the role of Dan Evans, but after reading the script, he chose to play the villain of the piece, Ben Wade. What results is Ford effectively playing against type and bringing an electricity to the role that jangles your nerves. Watching the film, you can see he's enjoying every second of playing a multi-layered, complex bad guy. Watching the original, Glenn Ford's take on Ben Wade establishes the outlaw as a dangerous man who kills when he feels necessary, yet appears to have a kind of cockeyed honor. By contrast, in the 2007 remake, Russell Crowe's outlaw is much more stylishly psychotic. He's meaner, which makes him somewhat less charming and a bit more chaotic. The character's seductive personality still defines him, but instead of using his charms to turn the head of Dan Evans' wife, as Ford did in the original, Crow's version of the character takes aim at Dan's teenage son, who is already disillusioned with his father, and is an easy target to be sold the false lure of a gunslinging adventure. Playing opposite Glenn Ford had to be a challenge, but character actor Van Heflin, in possibly the biggest role of his life, does an admirable job of keeping up with Ford's intensity. He lets Ford chew away at the scenery while effectively playing counterpoint, an approach that eventually turns his character into the central focus of the film. Van Heflin's version of rancher Dan Evans is on a slow burn. His character is ripe for change, which is the opposite of the Ben Wade character. We know who Wade is right from the start, but we have to discover who Evans is as the story progresses. Wade does go through a bit of a metamorphosis in the film's climax, but it's a dramatic twist Ford really has to work hard to sell. Conversely, Van Heflin's performance is a much more nuanced as he effortlessly changes Dan Evans before our eyes with every scene. 
There are also some differences between the original Dan Evans and the Dan Evans who appears in the remake. Van Heflin's rancher is a man of integrity. At first, he takes the job of getting Wade to the train because he needs the money for his family. But as the story progresses, he continues with the job simply because he feels it is the right thing to do. He's a man of quiet strength and principle, and Wade's decision to help him in the end is born of respect. Conversely, Christian Bales Evans is a world-weary, haggard person close to being defeated by life. While he does have a certain determination, he's emotionally subdued. He keeps going not so much because it's the right thing to do, but because he needs to prove to his son he's not a weakling. This change of emphasis leads Wade to continually outmaneuver Evans, and it makes Evans look sort of foolhardy. While Wade does come to like Evans after a fashion in the remake, in the end, he simply decides to help Evans more out of pity than respect. And I think that's one of the biggest changes in the two films that stands out for me. But the films also have a different look. The gorgeous black and white cinematography in the original delivers a harsh landscape. It's filled with steep angles, craggy trees, geometric shapes next to wide open spaces. And it has these long, deep shots with everything covered in dust. For me, that creates the visual tension and interest the film needs, especially in the second half where there is nothing left for anyone to do but talk and wait. The remakes filled with vibrant colors and smooth edges with every character's clothing, really a testament to the film's costume designer. You're right. And I think the original film, if you watch it today, it's still unlike anything else at that time in those respects. It was one of the last Westerns that was done in black and white. It could have been made in color, but they made a specific decision to shoot it in black and white to get the effect that they wanted. It was a good decision. Both films have strong scripts showing the intelligence of the characters, including the members of Wade's gang, who are so smart that clever machinations are needed to have any hope of getting Wade on the train to Yuma. In my opinion, the advantage the original has over the remake is in its tightness and simplicity. The remake opens up the action, putting the whole of the film on a much larger scale, showing the West as a whole, while the original is only concerned with Dan Evans' little piece of it. I prefer that. It's a definite change in emphasis. It's a feeling you get from the films. The films have so much in common, yet there are subtle differences that make them stand independent of each other. 310 to Yuma is really about desperation and savagery, but each film derives its own vision for those themes. The films are both character-driven by necessity, but cut to the bone, the same characters in each film become a reflection of the differences between the brilliant actors operating at the top of their powers who portray them. And if you couple that concept with a storyline prone to Shakespearean drama, you do get two different films, one ending in redemption, the other ending in tragedy. Which is why I, like you, prefer the original. Because tipping the remake into tragedy with an ending that is so disappointing in some ways seems a cop-out done strictly to manipulate a marked difference between the two films. The filmmakers may have perceived it as a better fit for a more sophisticated, revisionist Western audience. It's a post-Wild Bunch era, and it's almost a given that the remake would feature more graphic language and violence than the original. But aside from that, and considering the lavish scenery and costumes that you mentioned, director James Mangold seems more intent on sizzle than steak. I think that's true of the screenplay as well, co-written by Michael Brandt and Derek Haas, a last name that may sound familiar to you, Paul. 
It certainly does. One of my favorite fast action writers is Ben Haas, who wrote the Fargo and early Sundance novels under the pen name John Benteen. So when I saw Derek Haas's name at the end of the credits of Yuma, I wondered if there was a connection. It's a strange spelling. It's not H-A-S-S, it's H-A-A-S. I believe Haas had two sons, Joel and John, but I've never seen a mention of Derek, so it may just be a big coincidence. It's definitely a unique name. Derek Haas is a veteran screenwriter for both film and television and may be best known for his production work, again with Michael Brandt, on the NBC slate of Chicago shows, Chicago Fire, Chicago PD, Chicago Med, and Chicago Justice. So if any of our listeners know of a connection between Ben and Derek, please drop us a line. Let us know. It's interesting. Neither of the film directors could be considered household names. These have become iconic movies, but there's not an iconic John Ford, Sturges, or Tarantino between the directors. You're right. Mangold, the director of the remake, has done a lot of films, including two Wolverine movies, and he does seem to be coming into his own now with Ford vs. Ferrari. But the original 310 to Yuma's director, Delmer Daves, acted as writer or director on a ton of films. Several were westerns, including another movie with Glenn Ford, Cowboy, the adaptation of a Frank Harris semi-autobiographical novel. That said, I wouldn't put him in the A-list of well-known Hollywood names. It's strange that Delmar Davies never really broke out into the mainstream after directing 310 to Yuma. Is it just a case that that was a film that he rose to genius in, but the rest of the time he was just a solid workaday director? That's what it seems like. But he really did a terrific job of turning up the tension with 310 to Yuma. Summing up, it's safe to say both films are worth watching. You and I enjoyed both films, but I think we give the edge to the original 1957 version. Absolutely. I would recommend watching both films, maybe a day or two apart. But if you can watch them close together, you can really see some of these nuances we've been talking about. Okay, with the outlaw Ben Wade on the train and his gang shot to doll rags, let's change gears to a completely different aspect of the Western genre and the beginnings of what has become known as weird Westerns. Was that a collective gasp I just heard from our listeners? Quite possibly. Mentioning weird westerns to a gathering of traditional western fans often has that effect. Weird westerns are the tatted-up, multiply-pierced, motorcycle-riding, dope-smoking bad boys of the western genre. Rebellious teenagers who revel in shaking up the status quo. (laughs) Has anyone ever said you can be rattlesnake mean sometimes? Yeah. (laughs) Well, there is a spark of reality in your description. The practical reality is weird westerns are not a new offshoot of the western genre. They've certainly been around long enough to have sprouted various subgenres of their own, from steampunk westerns to western horror to western fantasy to science fiction westerns. Okay, now you're really upsetting traditional fans. You think my comments were going to generate snarky emails? Let's just see what mentioning western steampunk and western horror get us. (laughs) Seriously, weird westerns are simply more proof of the versatility and adaptability of the western genre. They're certainly not your grandpa's standard Louis L'Amour tales, but if L'Amour's late career novel Haunted Mesa is an indication, it's not a stretch to wonder if L'Amour wouldn't have gone further down the weird western trail if he was still writing today. Good point. L'Amour was a commercial writer, and he was quick to jump on commercial trends that would promote his writing. He was interested in selling his work, so weird westerns wouldn't have been a real stretch for him. 
And while the weird Western has certainly evolved, it's not hard to trace its roots back to the 1960s and to a TV show phenomenon which was pitched to CBS Network executives as James Bond on horseback, Wild Wild West. We're going to have to save an in-depth look at weird Westerns for an upcoming episode. But Wild Wild West is a great place to start talking about the genesis or what has evolved into Westerns filled with vampires, werewolves, and things that go bump in the night on the prairie. How about giving us a brief overview of Wild Wild West? Sure. Wild Wild West was one of the most innovative shows ever to appear on television. It ran for four seasons on CBS between 1965 and 1969. It had 104 hour-long episodes and two made-for-TV movies. And Wild Wild West did far more than simply put James Bond on horseback. It literally bridged the pop culture gap between Jules Byrne fantasy and the yet-to-be-explored world of steampunk a term which wouldn't be coined for another 15 years. So basically you're saying Wild Wild West was steampunk before there was steampunk, which is almost cooler than Steve McQueen to be that far ahead of the curve. Almost cooler. Let's make sure we're clear on that point. Almost cooler than Steve McQueen. The setup for Wild Wild West was simple. At the behest of President Ulysses S. Grant, America's first Secret Service agents, James West, who was portrayed by Robert Conrad, and Artemis Gordon, great Ross Martin, chase fantastical outlaws as they crisscross the West in their luxury private train. Set in the 1870s, Wild Wild West blended the waning but still popular TV Western with the burgeoning explosion of 60s TV spy series. Wild Wild West was that rare hybrid which captured the best of both of its influences. Pugnacious Robert Conrad was perfectly cast as a man of action, James West, with the emphasis on action. Decked out in stirrup pants, Cuban boot heels, and short bolero jackets, he cut an athletic figure, one that was very different than any Western TV hero before him. He was, of course, beguiling to beautiful women, but deadly to the vast assortment of villains with fiendish plans to take over the United States and then the world. <laughs> a master of disguise in the theatrical arts, Artemis Artie Gordon was also a scientist who invented the incredible array of gadgets West needed to battle the megalomaniacal forces ranged against them. And as I remember it, there were the gadgets galore. Sleeve guns, exploding belt buckles, a spring-loaded knife blade in the toe box of a boot, a derringer broken down to be concealed in a boot heel, a grappling hook attachment for a rifle, many, many more. The only thing cooler than the gadgets were the villains, each more fantastical than the last. Dr. Miguelito Quixote Loveless, a brilliant but petulant and psychotic dwarf, quickly became Jim West's arch-nemesis, always escaping the clutches of justice at the last second. Count Manzeppi was the diabolical genius of black magic and crime. The nefarious Emma Valentine and Dr. Faustino proved villainesses could also chew the scenery to menacing effect. In the mid-1960s, my 10-year-old brain was filled with the six-gun action of television westerns and the amazing espionage capers of TV's Man from U.N.C.L.E. When Wild Wild West's pilot episode, Night of the Inferno, premiered in 1965, I was totally enthralled by the mashup of the oddly Victorian-era time frame transposed onto a western landscape. And then you coupled that with the use of Jules Verne's technology, and it ignited my imagination like nothing before it. Paul, you said earlier there were 104 episodes of Wild Wild West and two made-for-TV movies, but there was also a feature film starring Will Smith and Kevin Kline. I screened it the other night, and I gotta ask you, Paul, do I get hazard pay for this job? 
for sitting all the way through that travesty. I think we can double your pay this week from $0 to $0. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. You know, you should have checked with me first because I could have warned you. That film is a travesty of the first order. Calling it a reimagining of the concept is being outrageously kind, not just because the film was so bad, but because it missed the opportunity to be something great. I can't imagine any Wild Wild West fan considering the Will Smith Kevin Klein debacle as canon, despite the catchy Wild Wild West rap theme song performed by Smith, which I actually find tolerable. Some of our listeners might disagree, and if you do, drop us a line. But I think the less said about that turkey, the better. Now, they may disagree that the Wild Wild West rap theme song performed by Smith was tolerable, but I can't imagine anybody disagreeing that that film was awful. But you never know. There's no accounting for taste. What else do you know about steampunk, Rich? Other than Wild Wild West, my first true exposure to steampunk was through a book called The Difference Engine by William Gibson and Bruce Sterling. Great book, and I still try to generally stay abreast of what's out there. Anything in particular you'd like to recommend to readers? I also want to recommend the annual Labor Day Bash Big River Steampunk Festival in Hannibal, Missouri. Been sort of a pilgrimage of ours for the last several years. I'm not sure if they'll be holding it in 2020 with all that's going on, but be sure to check out BigRiverSteampunkFestival.com for all the latest updates. It's just a blast. People dress up. There are sword fighting contests, stick fighting contests, invention contests. It's just a lot of fun. It runs all day long. There's plenty of food and drinks to be had and lots of camaraderie. I've made several friends there. Basically a Renaissance Fair steampunk version. It is. To preface an upcoming episode where we will take a much wider look at weird westerns, we should touch on two other shows that carried on the tradition of Wild Wild West. The first is Legend, which was a one-season wonder broadcast on the fledgling UPN network, which was one of those upstart networks that quickly floundered and died an ignominious death. The show starred a post-MacGyver Richard Dean Anderson and fan favorite John DeLancey. Legend would have had a much longer run on one of the regular networks. You need to consider Legend the love child of Wild Wild West and Maverick, a hybrid sci-fi western filled with kooky characters and amazing gadgets. I knew the show was doomed from the start because it was so very good and so very, very weird. Richard Dean Anderson plays Ernest Pratt, a notorious bourbon-swilling, cigar-chomping, gambling and womanizing author of a best-selling series of dime novel adventures in the late 1870s. Pratt writes the adventures of his hero Nicodemus Legend in the first person, and he even poses as Legend for the book covers. Learning that a warrant has been issued for his arrest in Colorado, Pratt is forced to assume the persona of his fictional, pure-hearted gentleman alter ego in an effort to clear his name. Delancey is a disgraced Hungarian scientist named Janos Bartok. He's a man who claims to be the real genius behind Thomas Edison. He assists Pratt in his identity subterfuge by providing the working models of the futuristic gadgets and inventions the fictional Nicodemus legend uses in the novels, including an earthquake machine. In return, Pratt reluctantly accompanies Bartok in his pursuit of adventure, the solution to mysteries, and the capturing of evildoers. It was so much fun. I've seen it too, and it was really terrific. It could have run for several more seasons on a stronger network. But for me, the better show is another one-season wonder, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., a show that starts like any typical Western. But when chained Chinese miners find a mysterious golden orb with rods sticking out, things change fast. 
Blue energy washes over the trapped men, enabling them to break their bonds with their bare hands, and a wonderful 27-episode series combining Western motifs with elements of steampunk, science fiction, romance, action-adventure, and comedy begins. The show follows Briscoe County Jr. as he hunts for the John Bly Gang, the escaped outlaws who murdered Briscoe's father. Briscoe is teamed with Socrates Poole, a buttoned-up lawyer, and fellow bounty hunter Lord Bowler. And then there's Comet, Briscoe's horse. As Briscoe often tells people, Comet doesn't know he's a horse. The animal, with a mind of his own, often traipses into scenes. Briscoe and Comet have good camaraderie, and Comet will often be there to save Briscoe. As soon as I saw the orb with its seemingly magical powers, I was hooked. As the series continues, more steampunk elements come into play. If the show had been picked up for a second season, it would have been great to have Robert Conrad guest star as a retired Secret Service agent. Oh, now that would have been cool. And that's our primer on Weird Westerns. We'll have to wait for another episode to dive deeper into that subgenre, as it's time once again for shootouts and shoutouts. This is our opportunity to thank those folks who continue to support our podcast, including our main sponsor, Wolfpack Publishing Trail Boss Mike Bray, who has allowed us to tilt at this podcasting windmill. We appreciate our handful of stalwart Patreon backers, including our later supporter, Benjamin Thomas. If you are enjoying the podcast, please check out the Six Gun Justice Patreon page and consider giving a small monthly stipend to help us keep the podcast rolling, rolling, rolling. And for being a first-tier Patreon supporter, Ben has just received his grab bag of five vintage paperback westerns with more goodies to come in the future. There's also a button at the top of the sidebar on the Six Gun Justice website for one-time donations. Every little bit helps us and goes directly back to the show as we upgrade sound equipment and keep up with the recording and hosting fees. Your comments on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram apps are always appreciated, as well as your emails to sixgunjusticewesterns at gmail.com. And be sure to keep an ear out for our new feature, Six Gun Justice Conversations. These will be occasional episodes in which either Rich or I get to hang out with one of our friends from the Western genre, having a 15-minute informal conversation. We're looking forward to sharing those with you. Next week, I'll be hosting a Speed Listen installment taking you behind the scenes of True Grit, comparing the novel, both film versions, and the TV miniseries. And in two weeks... On Episode 7 of the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, we're going to get into a shootout with Ben Haas, the wordslinger behind the John Benteen pseudonym responsible for two of our favorite action western series, Fargo and Sundance. We hope you'll posse up and join us. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and keep your masks on. Adios! We're out of here. Let's ride. Join us in two weeks for another episode of the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, sponsored by Wolfpack Publishing, bringing you the best of the West, including the Avenging Angels and Gunslinger series by A.W. Hart and many other best-selling Westerns, available on Amazon in ebook and paperback. <laughs>